This podcast is about the unexplained death of a young woman, Laura Van Wye. I have reviewed and I will report on the contents of official case files provided by the police department that's investigating her possible homicide, including witness interviews and police reports. You will hear me provide my own opinions about these materials in the hopes of shedding new light on this cold case. It's important to stress, no person has ever been charged or convicted of killing Laura, and everybody identified in this podcast is innocent until proven otherwise. Previously on Bonaparte. There's no way that baby was naked on the floor of a trailer. No way. If she had a diaper bag with her, the idea that she left the trailer in the middle of the night to go get diapers is just completely, I mean, it completely falls apart. Can you tell, tell me a little bit about Tony and Sarah, what you thought of them, and, and kind of what they were able to tell you? Both of them liars. Too bad we can't see, see who, who he's calling, calling right, right now. now. Yeah. I know. Yeah. It is hard to find any other actor in this situation that everybody would lie for except Donnie. I came to San Francisco. I just came up for like the weekend from LA. Like we must have talked on the phone, but it was before cell phones. So I do not know how we coordinated. This is Laura Barron, one of Laura Van Wye's childhood friends. She's telling me about seeing Laura in 1993 when Laura was 17. Barron is a freshman at UCLA at the time. When she hears Laura is living near San Francisco with her boyfriend, Donnie, she decides to drive up and see them. The directions she gets from Laura are unusual, but they're typical Laura. Meet at the waterfront in Sausalito. I do remember them rowing up in the rowboat, and I remember Laura fell off and fell into the bay and was like all wet, like getting off the boat into the shore. And then I said, I want to see the boat. So Laura and Donnie row Barron out onto the water. They're living on like this, basically this stripped down boat. If you're standing on the beach in Sausalito and you look out, you see San Francisco. So they were on that side of the Golden Gate Bridge and there's like a couple of different little marinas there and there's like a shishi marina and then there's like, like maybe where hippies might have homesteaded back in the hippie days. I know this area well. I lived in Sausalito myself for a summer, just a few years after Laura and Donnie it's a sliver of a town tucked along a narrow offshoot of the San Francisco Bay. And when it's not clogged with weekend tourists, it's a peaceful, throwback kind of place. When Otis Redding wrote Sitting on the Dock of the Bay, he was sitting on a dock in Sausalito. We, like, hung out in Golden Gate Park and just spent the day together. Laura was wearing like a green army coat and blue jeans, like a Henley, a white Henley, but like a dingy white Henley and, you know, crew cut hair. Donnie, he had on a jacket too. I think he had a wallet on a chain. I remember we went to the, the place with the hookahs and had lunch, like a Middle Eastern food. And we smoked the hookah. Laura had met Donnie the year before. They'd left Iowa together and lived nomadically on the West Coast for months. They were young, you know? So when you're young, like, the world's full of possibilities. I mean, Laura wasn't 20 yet, so, um, you know, when you're young, you're just, you're still exploring. 
I think that might have been the first time I met Donnie. And Donnie was very friendly and warm. He had a good-natured vibe about him, very easy to smile. Less than three years later, Laura would flee from Donnie, taking their infant son, Samson, back to Iowa City. And just a few months after that, Laura was dead. What happened between Laura and Donnie in those years? And does it have anything to do with the night Laura died? From Imperative Entertainment and Vespucci, I'm Jason Stavers. This is Bonaparte. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. Before she met Donnie, Laura was a troubled but promising teenager in Iowa City, a college town where a fast social life was available to kids from a young age. When I spoke with people who knew her then, I learned how they'd both been caught up in the partying and the sometimes edgy scene in Iowa City. I also learned how turbulent her relationship with Donnie was. Annie summed up their relationship like this. I mean, they were always having problems. That's the thing. Like, they did love each other, no question about it but it just seemed like they were always having problems. Another of Laura's friends, who didn't want her name used because of how painful this subject remains for her, told me that she thought Laura's choices as a teenager had deep roots. I did learn pretty early on um, there was quite a bit of tension between Laura and her dad. You know, we were all kids of parents that had split when we were very young. And I think that just create a very different understanding of boundaries and what is okay and what isn't okay. She was drawn to some wilder characters or people that were living on the fringe. Um, and so I think I can see how Laura attracted but was also drawn to some of the people that, that she was drawn to, you know, that maybe like, maybe like Donnie. The uncertainty and instability that defined Laura's life was there from the beginning. I was born into a very conservative religious family. That's Laura's mother, Leanne. She's a tall woman, over six feet, with straight posture. There's no sign she ever tried to hide her height, like you sometimes see in women who were once taller than all the boys in their class. I was the oldest daughter. So my job was to peel potatoes every night, and we had a big family, five kids. I peeled 10 pounds of potatoes every night. We're Dutch, so potatoes are huge. Ate them every day. Um, <laughs> and uh, to this day, I still love potatoes. The first thing I notice about Leanne when we meet in person is how strong her hands look. When we talk, she's direct and sure of herself. But... Sometimes, just occasionally, she drifts. She gets discursive, hard to follow, and a certain frailness comes into her voice. 
we weren't allowed to be, you know, mouthy or, uh, you know, talk back to people. And I was raised to be pretty compliant and not to really speak my mind or speak up. One of the very first things Leanne said to me was that sometimes she sees the future in dreams. The last time she saw Laura, she told me, she heard a voice telling her not to let Laura go. Mostly, though, like when she's telling me about her early years, she's a tall woman with strong hands, sure of herself. Leanne first meets Laura's father, Bill, when they're both in high school. He was kind of a bad boy. He, you know, rode a motorcycle and smoked, and he wasn't my family's first choice for the kind of person they wanted me to marry. Not their first choice, but then Leanne gets pregnant at 19. The families got together, and then that was it. We were getting married. They wouldn't let my dad give me away because I was pregnant. Bill was 45 minutes late to the wedding, and I was standing there, basically standing at the altar waiting for my groom to show up. Leanne and Bill are living in a small community in northeast Iowa. Two years after their first child, Sarah, arrives, they have another girl. Laura Van Wye is born on October 23, 1975. And a few months after Laura's birth, the family moves to Iowa City. Bill enrolls at the University of Iowa, and Leanne stays home to raise their daughters. It looks like a promising start, but Bill takes to partying more than he does studying, raising kids, or making money. The first winter we were there, all the pipes froze because you're supposed to wrap your pipes in Iowa in the winter. And so here I am with two kids in diapers and no water. Leanne works a part-time job to help make ends meet. I'd leave, you know, something in the crock pot for dinner, but I'd get home and he hadn't fed the kids. Leanne's life becomes about providing for her daughters and protecting them, even from their father. He was an idiot. This is Bill's sister, Evelyn Van Wye. She goes by Ev and has been friends with Leanne since they were both young. She's strong-minded and sure in her opinions. He'd take the money and buy brand new tools while they were still trying to figure out how to get enough groceries and shoes. I mean, I love my brother, but I just don't like him at all. You can't trust him. You don't know. I mean, it's like walking on eggs. You don't know when he's going to blow. Leanne says that Bill would raise his voice, belittle them, and put his own needs first. She says he was never violent with her or with Sarah, but even from an early age, Laura was strong-willed and defiant and Bill would lose his temper with her, sometimes violently. Yet Leanne's family had raised her to make the marriage work. They all put a lot of pressure on us to stay together and do whatever it would take to make Bill happy so that he'd be a good husband. I mean, they just assumed if he was happy that he would then be a good husband and father. So he got to pick what he wanted to do Leanne and Bill separate, but then they get back together again, and then they repeat this cycle several times during Laura's early years. During one of these breaks, Bill offers to take Laura and Sarah out for the weekend. Sunday evening rolls around, and Leanne waits, but there's no sign of Bill or the girls. Leanne drives all night looking for them before tracking Bill down in Sioux City. What did you say when you got out of the car? Nothing. I didn't say anything. I just hugged my babies. But Bill said, okay, now that you're back, you know, you're not leaving with them. 
If we go anywhere, we're all going together. Well, I took this as a positive, you know? I mean, I was still young. I was only 20, 23, 24. Very naive person. <laughs> Bill has it in his mind. He wants to live in Colorado. So in the spring of 1977, they moved to Georgetown, an old mining town where he could get work as an auto mechanic. Georgetown's a stunning place. Rows of Victorian houses squeezed into a crack in the Rocky Mountains. But it's also isolated with a population of only 800 people. And as the summer turns to fall, cold and dark. Laura's feuding parents have no outlets, no support network. And Georgetown becomes a pressure cooker. He was very punitive when we were potty training Sarah, he would spank her if she had an accident. And Laura was a much more vocal baby and child, and he would sometimes grab her by the front of her clothes and kind of shake her, trying to get her to be quiet. Leanne was raised in a conservative religious household. She knows what strict parenting looks like. This is not it. Laura was about, just about two. And it was the fall, and we were in a gas station, and she was crying and throwing a fit. And he picked her up by the front of her clothing and bashed her head against the wall, the back of her head against the wall, and yelled, stop crying. I reached out to Bill several times to get his version of these events. He refused to talk to me. I spoke at length with his sister, Evelyn, and through her, I passed on some of what Leanne told me. She said she would urge him to talk to me. Eventually, I got a text from Evelyn. She'd spoken to Bill. Bill and I had a nice long talk, she wrote, but a strong no. He said he doesn't like bringing up all that pain and emotion. He knows he's an ass and doesn't care. After just six months in Colorado, Leanne decides her children have been through enough. I was driving home from the grocery store with the kids, and Sarah was in the back playing with her doll. And I heard her say to her dolly, Mommies do the nice things and daddies do the mean things. And I thought to myself, this is what my four-year-old thinks. She's just doing her thing, playing with her doll. And that's when I decided to leave. Leanne rents a U-Haul trailer, packs up her things, and while Bill's at work, she takes Sarah and Laura and leaves for Iowa City. Once she's there, she files for divorce. While getting away from Bill provides some measure of comparative calm for Leanne, Laura, and Sarah, life is still far from easy. The three of them share a cramped apartment together, and Leanne has to work long hours at a nearby nursing home. She brings that same discipline to her parenting. My mother was extremely strict. Laura's sister Sarah was reluctant to speak with me for the podcast, partly because these memories are painful for her, but also because she spent her life trying not to let them define her, not to become the girl with the murdered sister. But like so many in Laura's life, she wants Laura's story told. When she did sit down with me, she was generous with her time and with her candor, in particular about her mother, Leanne. She was so strict to the point where I couldn't have a social life, and I, I felt completely strangled by her. She was very threatened and about me having friends and um, just started putting crazy curfews on me and grounding me all the time. I, I couldn't go out. 
really. She ended up punching one of my friends once or slapping one of them, um, who was my best friend at the time. And it was mortifying. And that friend wouldn't be friends with me anymore. And I cannot blame her. As Laura and Sarah grow from children to teenagers, they start spending more and more time out of the house. They find friends like Laura Barron and Annie who have more permissive parents and more comfortable homes. We spend a lot of time at my parents' house. That's Laura Barron. Because their mom was really strict and they, there was a lot of tension in their relationship based on them being at that age when you're starting to kind of assert your independence more. And my house, it was, there was nothing to rebel against. It's no longer the 1960s of Leanne's childhood. Iowa City is a progressive place, a long way from the rural community where she was raised. I think she was worried about them, um, worried about them getting involved with boys among, you know, drinking, drugs, all that stuff, right? She, so that caused her to kind of uh, become a little bit reactionary as a parent and become too strict. In many ways, Laura flourishes during middle school. She makes friends easily, she aces her schoolwork, and she throws herself into drawing and painting and all kinds of creative experiences. But the troubles of her home life are never far away. One friend remembers Laura having a distinct edge, even from early on. I felt like her kind of willingness to really explore boundaries was, I mean, there was a beauty to it for sure, but you could always, or I could always sense a kind of unease in, inside of that. It seemed so obvious to me that she was, had been through a lot. You could just kind of feel that. At home, the conflict with Leanne continues to worsen. In 1989, when Laura is 13, Leanne decides she needs to take the two girls to family counseling. For a few weeks, it looks like Laura's beginning to participate, that things might genuinely start to improve. But it doesn't last. Laura resists. She starts picking fights with Leanne and the therapist. It's almost as if every rule her mother lays down becomes an opportunity to push against a boundary, more canvas for her artistic freedom. By this time, Bill has come back to Iowa City. He offers the girls freedom from Leanne's discipline, just as he'd once offered Leanne freedom from her own parents. Bill still frightens Sarah, but at 15, she's so fed up with Leanne's strict parenting, she moves in with him. Several months later, Laura joins her, it's not a good situation. Basically, he was living like in these sort of, they were slums. Laura Barron again. I don't know if it's a creek or what that water is, if they're just ponds. And there's like a little, there's a little collection of shacks there. And that's where her dad was living. And, um, you know, no heat. In Iowa, you know, it's 80 below windshield in the winter. So like she was choosing to take a, big step away from creature comforts in order to have more civil freedoms, I guess. For all their rebelliousness, Laura and Sarah are much more dependent on their mother than they're willing to admit to themselves. And Bill is no replacement. Even the basics, like making sure there's food in the house, Bill forgets. Sometimes he comes home from work with McDonald's for himself, but nothing for Laura and Sarah. I fainted in high school. I fainted in a city high, and it was turned out because I was anemic, because I wasn't really eating the way I should, because, you know, I was, he wasn't feeding me, and um, I would just be eating 
at friends' houses whenever I could. I've asked Bill for his version of these events, but to date, he's declined to comment. And um, he became abusive again, particularly toward my sister. There was an incident that was just awful. Um, he just beat, beat her up very badly in front of me. Laura and Sarah returned to Leanne. That fall, Leanne takes Laura to Chicago for a weekend. They shop for clothes and have brunch at the Ritz-Carlton. Laura shows her portfolio to representatives from various art schools. It feels like things are looking up, but not for long. The year Laura turns 16, her older sister Sarah leaves for college. Without Sarah as a buffer, Laura's relationship with Leanne reaches its lowest point. We were in therapy together, and the counselor said, you know, you've got to make sure she follows the house rules. That's really important at this age. But what could I do? What was I going to do, call the police when she didn't come home? That, that gets you nowhere. That just gets you in trouble. You're the one supposed to be in charge of this minor. Laura finds a room at a group house in Iowa City and tells Leanne she's moving out. I had a therapist tell me, let her go. He said, you, you have a right to have a nice life, too. You don't have to be up all night waiting for her to come home and getting no sleep and worrying yourself to pieces. I can't believe a therapist would tell me that now that I think about it. I was very alarmed by that. She was only 16, you know, um, and my mother gave her independent status, like said, I'm done with you and you're on your own. Laura stops going to classes at her school, West High. For a while, she enrolls at the district's alternative high school, which focuses on arts education and non-traditional student needs. But then she stops going to class there, too. I think that was a bad decision. You know, dropping out of high school for her was not a good, not a good decision. Annie recalls this as a turning point in Laura's life. I think that Laura, especially during that time period, probably didn't have enough support, you know? I think Sarah was a really important part of her support system. And I think that that was probably hard on Laura. Away at their first year of college, Sarah and Annie are getting more worried. They know the crowd Laura is with, and they fear how deep she's getting into it. I mean, like, listen, we were all friends with all of them, too. But Laura definitely had a higher tolerance for, um, you know, hanging out with, you know, drug addicts and, you know what I mean? They would go to bars, and they would create general havoc, have these crazy parties that were truly deranged. I mean, really weird. Destroying things, uh, you know, shooting heroin, um, people dancing naked, taking, just doing dangerous, weird things with their bodies and with drugs and, you know, I didn't want to be there. And I didn't want Laura there. When the spring semester ends, Sarah heads back to Iowa City to try to set some boundaries in Laura's life. She lived in a room near Mike's Bar, which was by the tracks. And it was like a huge house with lots of rooms and communal bathrooms and kitchens. It's the summer of 1992. The Rodney King riots have put the country on edge, and it's a presidential election year. 
College students everywhere are organizing and looking to their future. But in Iowa City, Sarah's focus is on a one-room apartment and her troubled sister. There was a mattress on the floor. You know, she's a kid with no belongings. You know, uh, I think she got to take her mattress with her. She doesn't have anywhere to hang clothes. They're all, all over the floor. There's a lot of art making stuff on the ground and on the walls. She's got a lot of art posted up on the walls. It had a window to a parking lot and, um, you know, it was pretty chaotic. Sarah lives with Laura all that summer. They share the same room. They share the same mattress on the floor. I kind of went and did the smackdown like I'm the older sister. These are the boundaries. I said, Laura, I don't care if you smoke pot. I don't care if you drink, you know, snort cocaine sometimes, but stop injecting. You know, that's, you cannot do that. And, and no heroin. You're really putting your life in danger, your health in danger. Stop doing this. It seems like Sarah's return might provide some of the stability Laura needs. For two weeks, Laura studies painting and drawing at the School of Art Institute in Chicago, where she's won a scholarship. It's just the sort of gifted program intended to find young people like Laura and challenge them to excel. But whatever Laura gets out of the program, it's not enough to keep her on track. As for Annie, she isn't around that summer. She's nannying for a family in Cape Cod. But Annie's boyfriend stays in Iowa City, and he starts spending more time with Laura. That was very awkward. Did Anne mention this to you at all? Yeah. She, she was dating Anne's boyfriend. I mean, I wouldn't call it dating. They were, you know, just getting together. It was a very weird summer, you know? <laughs> it all comes out eventually, of course. Annie isn't happy about it, but neither is she all that upset. In fact, this particular anecdote about Laura sleeping with her boyfriend, it's one of the first stories Annie tells me about Laura. I always said, well, she's the only person who could cheat on my boyfriend with me and I wouldn't be that mad at her. Mm-hmm. Like, I really wasn't mad at her. I just felt protective of her because she was, at the same time that she was very strong, she was also so vulnerable. Like Sarah and Annie, none of Laura's friends that I spoke to were Puritans or naive about her teenage partying. It's not that they were worried that Laura had discovered boys and drinking and drugs. Rather, they were concerned that all these things put together, the partying, the lack of education, the fading ambition, that they'll short-circuit Laura's unlimited potential Laura is unlike anyone they've ever met, but she's becoming like too many people that they know. She's sinking alongside people who are angry and depressive and alienated. At the end of the summer on their shared mattress on the floor, Sarah decides to take a year off from college. She's not happy at school, and she's still deeply concerned about her sister. They rent a house together and get jobs at a local restaurant. That year, Laura meets Donnie. And Donnie, by comparison, seemed like an angel. (laughs) Let me tell you. (laughs) Um, And I actually encouraged her to date him. I was like, let's get away from this scene. And maybe Donnie's an improvement. You know, Donnie has a good heart. I mean, Sarah and I talked about it. And I remember actually Laura talking to us about it, like that she liked Donnie. And we're like, yeah, go for it, you know. Donnie was like a really, he was really fun. Like he was really fun to hang out with. Um, he was very exuberant um, and funny. 
And yes, he did love to take his shirt off. <laughs> so, you know, he was kind of blonde and pretty cute, had some tattoos. So uh, he did at that time in his life, he did often seem to have his shirt off, especially if it was summertime. Everybody liked Donnie, you know, he's, even I liked Donnie, you know, like, uh, and I don't always like people, <laughs> you know, I'm pretty judgmental. Donnie is older, 22, while Laura is 17, and he's not completely detached from the rougher parts of Laura's social circle, but he's still a breath of fresh air. He struck me as a genial, kind of happy-go-lucky guy, and I... I could tell that she was a good person inside. Laura is dating one of Donnie's friends. That's how they meet. But in the spring of 1993, they get together. Within weeks, they make plans to get out of town. Leanne is not happy about this plan. She's barely met Donnie and doesn't figure to like him much if she did, considering he's a 22-year-old man planning to take her 17-year-old daughter to California before she even graduates from high school. But she knows there's no stopping Laura. So Leanne gives Laura $500 for the road on the condition that she take the high school equivalency exam before she leaves. She does, and passes, of course. Then Laura and Donnie head out to San Francisco. Eventually, they find a place to live on that broken-down sailboat that Laura Barron would visit later that summer. They travel up and down the coast, sometimes hopping freight trains. And eventually, they end up in Oregon, where they're hired on a commercial tuna fishing boat. Laura doesn't take well to the hierarchy of the sea and lets the captain know how she feels. As she would tell the story later, and my impression is that she would tell the story with pride, Laura lets the captain know what she thinks of him, quite directly, and the captain punches her in the mouth. The two of them end up having to be separated by the crew. It's the end of the tuna season anyway, so Laura and Donnie head back to San Francisco. They stay long enough to sell their boat and make their way back to Iowa for Christmas. Annie was there when she got back. I remember meeting her at the Greyhound station. You know, she was wearing this jacket, this really cool, like, patchwork leather jacket that she later gave to me. And my dad gave it to Goodwill. I'm still furious about that. It was a really cool jacket. Um, but yeah, I remember she had her hair cut short and she was wearing that jacket and she looked really cool. Um, and she looked grown up. Like, she just looked like, you know, she'd started to lose her baby fat a little bit. I just remember she looked a lot older when she got off that bus. Ever restless, Laura and Donnie don't stay in Iowa long. Donnie's aunt, who lives in Hawaii, has to extend a visit to Iowa, and she ends up with two one-way tickets to Honolulu that she can't use. Donnie and Laura jump at the opportunity. She moved to Hawaii, and she loved Hawaii. I loved hearing her talk about Hawaii. Donnie and Laura have a little money from selling their boat in California. They decide to live on the beach to make it last. One friend of Laura's told me she remembers that they were living in a tent. They're out there for about four months. I think her and Donnie started to have more problems when they were there. Accounts differ about why Laura and Donnie eventually decide to come back to Iowa City. According to Leanne, out of the blue one day, Laura calls home and tells her she's sick. She really wasn't sick, sick when she came back. And I was starting to savor pride and just said, well, you better come home if you're sick. They were malnourished for sure. Um, but she just had to have an out, you know, 
to say, Mom, help, this is not going to work, right? Donnie tells this story differently. According to him, Laura had just gotten a job in Hawaii and wanted to stay. It was Leanne who called, telling Laura that her catering business was struggling and she needed Laura to come work for her. Leanne offered to fly Laura home, but Laura insisted that her mother buy tickets for both her and Donnie. However it happens, by April 1994, Laura and Donnie are back in Iowa. And um, she got pregnant, of course. (laughs) Laura is 18 years old. Donnie is 23. Sarah is immediately concerned. Donnie has shown little inclination toward settling down, and his only work experiences are minimum wage stints at restaurants, movie theaters, and two months on a fishing boat. She's certain that now is not the right time for Laura to have a child and convinces Laura to have an abortion. But Sarah is concerned about more than just the pregnancy. Around this time, Laura also begins telling people that Donnie has been violent with her. Later, in court filings, Donnie would acknowledge that there had been violence. But, he claims, it was mutual. Two strong-willed people with intense feelings for one another. This is an actor reading what Donnie submitted to the court under oath. Laura and I did have a volatile relationship at times. We were both stubborn at times and, as a result, sometimes got into yelling matches. There were a couple occasions where the yelling escalated and we scratched each other or pulled each other's hair. In the same court case, he admits to shoving Laura to the ground once and to another later incident, though in both cases he claims the physical confrontation was mutual. According to affidavits signed by Laura's friends, however, it went further. One wrote that Laura told her that Donnie had, quote, become very angry and violent quite often. Several described specific incidents. I'm like, okay, that is it. You are done with this guy. You know, please get away from him. You know, I don't know what we had to do here, but you cannot have a relationship with him anymore. That's totally outrageous, you know? Just like Leanne and Bill, Laura and Donnie do separate several times, but they always seem to find their way back to one another, much to Sarah's frustration. After a few months of separating and reuniting, Laura becomes pregnant again. Annie suspects it was not an accident, that Laura had come to regret her abortion, that the idea of motherhood appeals to her. So on August 7th, 1995, Laura gives birth to her son, Samson Knight. She's 19, the same age as her mother when she had Sarah. Donnie helps deliver the baby, and they have a home birth, which are uncommon, less than 1% in the United States. But that's Laura's approach to life, hands-on and fully immersed. Samson is born at their little duplex on Grant Street, the same house where Laura had cultivated that beautiful backyard garden. But eventually, perhaps because they need more help, Donnie and Laura move out of the duplex and in with Leanne. As you might expect, this does not go well. Tensions rise. Leanne thinks Donnie is partying too much, that he's not pulling his weight. Perhaps she sees an echo of her ex-husband, Bill. Donnie and Laura's relationship frays in this tense environment. During an argument, Donnie grabs Laura and says, quote, you make me so mad, sometimes I think I could just kill you. In July, just before Samson's first birthday, Laura and Donnie plan another trip. So they went out, they decided to take this trip out west. I guess maybe they wanted to introduce Sam to people or they just wanted to get out of town for a while. They rent a van 
and along with Donnie's younger brother, Ben, head west. But somewhere outside Bozeman, Montana, the van breaks down. They need parts that aren't available locally, so Laura, Samson, Donnie, and Ben are all stuck waiting for nearly a week, frustrated that their trip is stalled. According to Donnie, what happens next is typical of the mutual escalation that defined his relationship with Laura. Laura and I were having an argument about the van. She started walking off with Sam, so I took the stroller with Sam and said, we will meet you back at camp. About a mile later, Laura charged me from behind and struck me on the back with both fists while I was crossing a busy four-lane road and almost knocked me down and the stroller rolled free. Laura grabbed it and crossed the street. I followed her and we started yelling. And Laura reached out and grabbed my lower lip and then I slapped her as a reaction to having my lip grabbed. My brother Ben Knight was present for most of this. At dinner with Annie and Laura's friends in Iowa City, I asked Annie about this incident. The way she told it to me was, Donnie's brother did not react to it and Sam was there. And she was like, Donnie's brother thinks this is normal. Like, he's not even reacting. And she was like, I can't let Sam think this is normal. Other friends of Laura would echo this perspective. For Laura, it was the lack of reaction from Donnie's brother that was most troubling. Laura was concerned about the violence in her relationship, they say. But seeing Donnie's brother remain totally unfazed by this incident, that was the last straw. Laura didn't want Samson to grow up thinking this kind of violence was normal. After the argument in Montana, Laura took Samson with her on the next bus back to Iowa City. When Donnie catches up with her, she tells him it's over between them, and he has to move out. According to what Laura tells friends, from that point on, Donnie only sees Samson when Laura makes the effort to connect them. Donnie continues to work at Leanne's catering company, but Laura says he's not supporting her financially. Whether it was over between Laura and Donnie for good at that point, no one can say. But it was the most serious break yet. And almost 20 years earlier, Laura's mother had left Laura's father, also in a small mountain town far from Iowa City, and also because she feared how his behavior would shape their own children. Leanne would go on to get her college degree and open her own business. For her part, Laura too appeared renewed with purpose. She'd stopped using drugs, she was reconnecting with childhood friends, and she was opening her own business, a daycare. Then, three months after the split in Montana, Donnie invites Laura and Samson to Bonaparte for a party. Laura never returns. Immediately after Laura's death, Donnie and Leanne start taking care of Samson together at Leanne's house. But soon they have a falling out, and each seeks custody of Samson, taking their case to court. For Leanne and others, the question of who killed Laura would become intertwined with another question, who should raise her son? As the court case went on, you know, it took two and a half years. As it went on and we got more and more of Donald's medical records, I was like, wow. That's next time on Bonaparte. Bonaparte is a production of Imperative Entertainment and Vespucci and is written and hosted by me, Jason Stavers. For Imperative Entertainment, the executive producers are Jason Hoke and Andrew Richards. For Vespucci, the executive producers are Daniel Turkin and Johnny Galvin. 
with story guidance from Matt Willis and Pete Sale. The series producer is Thomas Curry. The executive producer is Emma Weatherill. Voice acting by Stefan Manal. Original music by Thomas Ross Fitzsimmons. Audio mix and sound design by Peregrine Andrews at Moving Air. Visit the Champion for Laura Van Wy Facebook page or championforlaura.com for more information about how you can help. If you like the show, please make sure to leave a review and don't forget to tell your friends. Thanks for listening. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.